charter a course, I will charter a course, if we can just get the country to trust us. Charter a course, southeast, west, and north, and along the way we may find justice. Hello, and welcome back to Charter a Course, a podcast created by the David Asper Center for Constitutional Rights at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. I'm Cheryl Milne, the Executive Director of the Asper Center. Our podcast focuses on leading constitutional cases and issues, highlighting strategic aspects of constitutional litigation and some of the accomplishments of U of T's faculty and alumni. It is our hope that over the course of this episode, whether you are a law student, a lawyer, or thinking of launching your own constitutional challenge, that you learn some aspect of constitutional law and litigation that interests you. Today's topic is Section 33, otherwise known as the Notwithstanding Clause. I will be handing over hosting duties for our first segment to Caitlin Salvino, the Asper Center's Summer Research Assistant, and somewhat of an expert on the topic. I will let her introduce herself to you. Thank you, Cheryl, for the introduction. Welcome again to Charter Course Podcast. My name is Caitlin Salvino. I'm a JD candidate at the University of Toronto and a summer research student at the Asper Centre. Prior to this, I pursued master's and doctoral studies in law at the University of Oxford, researching the Notwithstanding Clause. My research examined both the unique vulnerability of minority groups to the Notwithstanding Clause and proposing a new interpretive approach for the judiciary. Today, we will focus on Section 33 of the Charter, also known as Canada's Notwithstanding Clause. Known as a distinctive Canadian legal invention, the Notwithstanding Clause creates a legislative tool that permits federal, provincial, or territorial legislatures to declare an act or provision of an act to operate notwithstanding sections 2 and 7 to 15 of the Charter. Any Notwithstanding Clause declaration must be passed by a legislative simple majority and expires after five years. Upon expiry, the Notwithstanding Clause is perpetually renewable. This podcast examines the Notwithstanding Clause and its unique role within Canada's constitutional democracy. We will discuss its development, its operation, the political implications thus far, and the existing jurisprudence on its application. Our practice corner will be speaking to two lawyers involved in the legal challenge against the invocation of the Notwithstanding Clause in Quebec's Bill 21. But first, let's introduce our guest for the discussion on Section 33. Professor Lorraine Weinrib is a professor emerita at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law and Department of Political Science. She holds law degrees from the University of Toronto and Yale University and completed undergraduate studies at York University. Professor Weinrib taught constitutional law at the University of Toronto, including advanced courses on the charter, constitutional litigation, and comparative constitutional law. Prior to teaching at the University of Toronto, she worked in the Crown Law Office, holding the position of Deputy Director of Constitutional Law and Policy. In that capacity, she represented Ontario in the only case in which the Supreme Court of Canada has delivered on the validity of an invocation of Section 33. Her submissions resulted in the only judicial restriction on its exercise. She has published extensively on the Canadian Charter, including the Notwithstanding Clause. So, welcome, Lorraine, and thank you very much for joining us. Let us begin by talking about how Section 33 came to exist in the first place. The Notwithstanding Clause is often referred to as a political compromise necessary for the patriation of Canada's constitution in 1982. How did it get added to the Charter, and why is it considered a political compromise? The main feature of the Charter from the legal perspective is that it's an exceptional. It's an exception to the exceptionally strong rights guarantees in the Charter and the exceptionally narrow and normative limitation clause that the courts evaluate in the second state of charter litigation. The charter, with its strong rights protection, its narrow limitation clause, and its override clause, emerge from truly many decades of political controversy and deliberations, which were often antagonistic. One of the elements of the constitutional package was to transfer the power to amend Canada's written constitution from the United Kingdom Parliament to Canadian institutions, for which there had to be a formal amending formula to provide the requisite agreement between the federal government and the provinces for domestic amendment of our constitution. When that patriation 
exercise was, was performed, Canada would, would become totally constitutionally and legally and politically independent from the United Kingdom. So that was one part of the reform package. The other part was to bring Canada in conformity with its obligations under the international human rights system. The amending formula discussions were antagonistic between the federal government and the provinces because they couldn't figure out an acceptable amending formula. There were two times when all 11 governments agreed and then Quebec backed out. So this is the beginning of Quebec being an outlier in our constitutional reform process. The charter was supported by social movement groups that initiated their work in the immediate aftermath of the war, continued, and by a strange combination of events, turned out to be the, the strongest force in writing the charter and also in breaking provincial opposition to the charter. This is a fascinating story. And I've written about it in some of my articles, and I'd be happy to uh, share links to uh, my articles on this public participation and also other people's writings. It's a very important and I think uh, sadly neglected part of the development of the Charter. So we have, when we get to the late 70s and 80s, a a complicated set of constitutional proposals that included patriation, a new amending formula um, to be used domestically to uh, alter the um, terms of our written constitution and the charter, with the provinces and the federal government standing in opposition. Up into the middle of that, uh, it seemed um, uh, unresolvable conflict, um, marched the Canadian public in the form of participation in a special joint committee that was formed in 1980 and 81. This was the only uh, opportunity that ordinary Canadians had had in Canadian history to write the terms of any part of their constitution. And here it was the great prize of writing the charter. At the point that the Joint Committee began its work, the Charter draft was very, very weak, the confrontation was. The public interest groups, which had been nurturing this Charter project for decades, they had organized, they had raised funds, they had educated themselves, they had done public education, they had secured experts to support their positions in court and in parliamentary and legislative proceedings, but they had never had a national audience. Um, And they came forward with strong, cogent, polished presentations with historical material and empirical material. And many of the groups were expert groups in civil liberties and human rights and international law, but many of them represented the people and the groups that had suffered in Canada over the years because they, they had no rights and they had very little political power. <clears throat> the joint committee proceedings with all of these pro-charter public interest groups presenting were televised and widely watched. And the result was suddenly there was very, very strong uh, public education about uh, the advantages of a charter and the advantages of a strong, effective charter and the advantages of judicial review of charter rights claims. Not only that, there was um, uh, increasingly more and more polling showing that the public was not only listening, but they were more increasingly convinced that Canada should have a very strong charter with protecting a wide assortment of rights and uh, designed to prevent, of course, the atrocities of the Second World War with skyrocketing public support for the Charter in every province. The legitimacy of the provincial opposition to the Charter waned. And so this few rights and very deferential judicial review uh, draft of the Charter was thrown out the window. And in the Joint Committee, clause by clause, the, the rights were uh, enriched, they were strengthened, 
the limitation clause was given a strong normative direction in emulation of the international human rights instruments and other regional instruments, other post-war national constitutions. The gender equality clause was added. The multicultural heritage clause was added. There was the strongest affirmation of judicial review with the provision for just and appropriate remedies. And there was a strong statement of the application of the charter to all levels of government. At this point, with the popularity of this very strong charter draft, Prime Minister Trudeau had a much stronger position as against the provinces. And he used that position to offer a referendum. This was an offer that Quebec couldn't refuse. Quebec did accept it. And that broke the bonds of the eight provinces that um, had promised to each other that they would not make any unilateral move, that they would operate in opposition as a unit to strengthen um, its effectiveness. With the so-called Gang of Eight opposition now down to seven, the other premiers realized that they had to scramble in order to get what they could because Trudeau was the kind of prime minister whom one could believe would decide to go ahead with a referendum. It was high-stakes politics. The premiers had the same polling as the federal government had, and so they knew that it would be political suicide to go into a referendum against the charter. As um, then-Justice Minister Cretchen said, let them come after me. I offer them equality. I offer them liberty. I offer them freedom of religion and freedom of expression. How are they going to argue against those principles? The result was the adoption of the charter. But the provinces knew that there was still some room to exert pressure. And the pressure they exerted was a demand for the override clause. So that's how we got the override clause. So this is why I want to stress that it's an exception, because the premiers had very little political legitimacy in demanding an override clause for which there was almost no public support. They had very little legitimacy in celebrating legislative supremacy when the whole country had just been educated in all of the problems in Canada and elsewhere on the world stage when majorities ruled without any obligation to respect the equal and inherent human dignity of each person and the validity of groups other than the founding groups of the nation. So what they got in the override was an exception to a very popular constitutional reform package in the form of the charter and many other important features. So that's how we got the override. I'm so glad that you mentioned the Special Joint Committee on the Constitution because so often it's overlooked in the development of the Charter when it was really one of the first opportunities or the first opportunity where the public got to participate in constitution making. And the civil society organizations had a lot of influence over Section 1, the Limitations Clause, and encouraging that to be reformed. But Section 33 wasn't yet in the draft of the Charter. So then they're really the civil society organizations didn't get to comment on it and didn't you know know that it was coming until they shared the the final draft of the charter right before it was passed by the House of Commons. Section 33 of the charter comprises of five subsections. A federal, provincial, or territorial legislature can invoke the notwithstanding clause to declare that an act operates notwithstanding sections two and seven to fifteen of the charter for a period of up to five years. Let us break down Section 33 for our listeners. Can you describe the structural elements of the notwithstanding clause? The text of Section 33 was drafted in a very short order because the um, federal negotiators knew that the provinces had reached an agreement, but they had never held to an agreement in the past. And so there could have been better drafting, and as Caitlin said, there could have been more deliberation on the, the notwithstanding clause. But these are the features that were nailed down. First of all, it's a legislative action that declares the, the override power in effect. So it can be federal government or provincial government. It's done through an enactment in either case, which means normally enactments go through three readings. They have committee work. They have uh, legislative debate. Um, there's usually there's usually a prolonged process, so there's enough time for a, a public um, discussion, expert input, 
impact analysis, the notwithstanding clause is not applicable to all guarantees in the Charter, only to those that were considered novel or traditionally not um, subject matter under the auspices of judges. So these are Section 2, which includes the fundamental freedoms of, uh, for example, freedom of expression, freedom of religion, freedom of association. Next, the legal rights, um, the right to life, to liberty, security of the person, and the rights that people enjoy uh, uh, under the criminal justice system. And lastly, the equality clause, which has two sections. One is a a section of non-discrimination, and the other is a section on affirmative action. So these are sections that were very strongly pressed for enactment by the Joint Committee because they encompass a large percentage of the problems in Canada that had popped up from time to time or that were chronic in terms of uh, protecting fundamental rights. When an, an override declaration is enacted, it can be um, invoked to apply to a whole statute or a part of a statute. And in terms of the rights, it, it, it can apply to any of the rights or could apply to all of the rights that are subject to the override. Uh, but I think it's important the override instrument has the effect of suppressing the particular rights that it names for the maximum of a five-year period. The legislature or parliament invoking the override can um, dictate a period of time shorter than five years, but it's a maximum of five years. There's also the possibility of renewal, but the text of Section 33 makes very clear that while renewal is possible after the maximum five-year period, the override instrument sunsets. It ceases to have operation for some period of time before the enactment. It may only be a notional minute, but that at, at that moment, the charter right comes alive and at least at that time, um, that there is a basis for uh, litigation. There's currently a debate within the literature on whether courts should be permitted to conduct the charter analysis and declare a charter infringement when the notwithstanding clause is invoked. Specifically, Robert Leckie and Eric Mendelson, in a recent University of Toronto Law Journal article, argued that when a notwithstanding clause is invoked, courts may declare unjustifiable rights infringements but may not strike down the operation of the law, which is protected by Section 33. Could you comment on your view of the court's role when the notwithstanding clause is invoked? Now, I would argue that there is a basis for litigation when an override declaration is in effect. What would be unavailable is any kind of remedy giving relief from the override. You can't, uh, unless there's been some... Uh, failure to comply with the strictures that I've mentioned, the override will have legal effect. But I don't believe there's anything in the section, and I believe there's everything in terms of the purposes of the Charter, the normativity of the Charter, the public support for the Charter, and uh, the lack of support for the override publicly, that there can be and should be litigation when an override instrument is in place, um, but no remedy. The uh, remedy uh, would fall into place when there is a sunset and that for some notional period of time, if there, if there is a renewal, that uh, there's, there is uh, a right that has been breached that is alive and functioning. I, I think that that is a necessary implication from the five-year period because if you, had to, if, if you had an override and didn't know if the rights had actually been breached for five years, And then there is the sunset or the expertise of the override clause. You would then have to start litigation just to know if your rights had been breached. And that doesn't make any sense. That would extend the five-year period to at least 10 10 years until you could get a Supreme Court of Canada judgment. So this is is an issue that is uh, being discussed in the academic literature. 
And I think that what I've just described is a textual basis uh, for, which is the strongest kind of legal argument you can make in, in this context um, in terms of this exceptional uh, capacity of override that this section provides. So I think that it's, it's important to use temporary a period that's stipulated in, in order to shine light on the question as to whether you can litigate during the time when a declaration is operative. The sunset clause that you discussed is the idea of the democratic accountability of the notwithstanding clause. So the notwithstanding clause purposely cannot be applied to sections three to five of the charter, which are democratic rights. And then the sunset clause expiring every five years aligns with when democratic elections are held, at least provincially and federally. And so the idea with the notwithstanding clause was also that if it's used inappropriately or too much, the public would intervene through elections to hold the political government accountable for how they use the notwithstanding clause. And that's something that was really important to its design. Now that you've discussed how the notwithstanding clause can be invoked, we can discuss how it's actually been invoked and how it's been used politically in the past 40 years. When the notwithstanding clause was first added to the charter, the charter drafters defended its inclusion by presenting that it was a tool of the last resort, only to be used, as Jean Chrétien said, to correct absurd situations. In some of my recent doctoral research, I produced an updated catalog on the notwithstanding clause uses and have identified that between 1982 and 2022, there were a total of 24 pieces of legislation tabled with the notwithstanding clause. 16 of these 24 notwithstanding clause bills were subsequently fully promulgated and became effective. Could you please discuss some of the uses of the notwithstanding clause, including the uses by Quebec, a province that scholars Guillaume Rousseau and François Côté argue has a distinct notwithstanding clause practice? Yes, well, the first and only case so far litigated in the Supreme Court of Canada came out of Quebec's first very, very extensive indeed, maximal use of the override. And I'll speak about that legislation and uh, how the Supreme Court of Canada dealt with it in a moment. I was privileged to represent Ontario in that litigation, and so I have quite a um, detailed memory of the oral argument and the um, disposition. After that, there were a period of time where the idea of using the override was anathema began, uh, I, I wrote an article published in the Israel Law Review uh, when Israel was considering copying Canada's override. And what I wrote about was the non-use of the override, all the times when it was proposed or considered and there were decisions not to use it. And one of the things that was interesting is that the uh, imagery used was that the override was a, like an atomic weapon. <laughs> you know, it, it, there's it's fine to have it, <laughs> but you should never use it uh, because it would be more trouble than it was worth. And and actually, uh, one of the most interesting examples of that was in Alberta. Alberta had been uh, the premier of Alberta, um, Premier Lougheed had been the champion of the override. And in Alberta, there was this very interesting um, deliberation on using the override um, in the um, same-sex equality subject matter. And the premier rejected using the override, even though there was quite overwhelming popularity for doing it. And he said that he read the emails and the phone messages and the media coverage urging him to use the override. And as he said, it turned his stomach. It was just so homophobic. And he said, if those are the reasons that the public wants this, then you basically can't have it. The occasion for him to say he wasn't going to use it was just before Easter. And he said, I urge Albertans to go home and basically love your neighbor, <laughs> respect the human dignity of your neighbor, and consider what fundamental uh, rights and freedoms are. So there was a long period where uh, the override was an option, but it wasn't used. Quebec ha has used it most, and, and um, two of the most current con um, controversial uses of it are in Bill 21, which restricts the wearing or display of religious symbols. And the main burden of that prohibition in the name of the secular nature of the, the state, and therefore the required secular appearance of people who carry out public functions, is that the state should uh, be, be secular. But just returning to Caitlin's point about uh, the democratic process, the override 
in that situation was passed in a fast-track method with very little public deliberation, with almost virtually no consideration of the perspective of the people whose lives would be affected by having jobs unavailable to them or having their jobs frozen. Another uh, current, more excessive override in Quebec is uh, relates to the use of the French language. Quebec is also always rightly pre uh, preoccupied with the minority status of the use of French in Quebec, but it seems that the um, claims of the fragility of the use of the language are overstated in these contexts. And we, we will uh, sort of wait to see there's litigation in play for um, both of those elements. Another, I think, egregious example is the province of Ontario, my province. Without Ontario's support, the Charter Project would not have been kept alive long enough for the Joint Committee to ignite its popularity. And so it, it is just a wrenching experience for me to see how Ontario has used the override in two election contexts. One was a decision which was not announced beforehand in a provincial election that ended the municipal election in Ontario, which was more than almost two-thirds expired. <laughs> the premier, in a very superficial legislative process, also fast-tracked and with no, almost no deliberation and no public hear hearings and weekend and evening sessions and emptying the, um, the public gallery, uh, introduced legislation that changed the boundaries in the municipal election, which meant that all of the candidacies were cancelled, that the election spending was gutted, the whole notoriety of the override process got it and distracted the electorate from any kind of issues. People didn't know who they were voting for. It was terrible. It turned out, for reasons that I don't have to get into, that the override didn't have to be used, but the override legislation was quite horrific. It had retroactive features. It had a delegated features so that the inv actual invocation of the override would take place uh, by the action of a minister rather than the action of the um, legislature. I think that those are the most prominent examples. And so we have a lot of opportunity to um, re reflect on ways in which provinces have used the override so as to avoid the political criticism and opposition that would follow if there had been a full, regular political evaluation and, and legislative process undertaken. Turning to the notwithstanding clause jurisprudence, based on the nature of the clause and thus far relatively low uptake, there's limited case law in Section 33 of the Charter. The leading case is Ford and Quebec. In Ford, the Supreme Court of Canada heard a challenge to the notwithstanding clause invoked twice, applying it to the existing Charter of the French language. Both of the notwithstanding clause invocations aimed at protecting French language protections specifically requirements that all commercial signs be only in French, and protecting it from sections 2 and 7 to 15 of the Charter. Ford was the first time the Supreme Court of Canada heard a case challenging the constitutionality of a notwithstanding clause invocation, and the decision by the Supreme Court of Canada was very interesting. First, the Supreme Court of Canada analyzed section 2B of the Charter and determined that the requirement of unilingual commercial signs unjustifiably violated the constitutional freedom of expression rights. Then, the court addressed the two notwithstanding clause invocations. The court declared the first notwithstanding clause invocation to have expired, and the second notwithstanding clause invocation to be invalid because it was applied retroactively to the statutes. In making this decision, the Supreme Court of Canada stressed that it was not the role of the courts to substantively review notwithstanding clause invocations. Instead, the court should apply a form-only approach to the notwithstanding clause. Lorraine, you are involved in this case, representing the Ontario government as an intervener. Could you discuss this case in more detail and your experiences while litigating the validity of the override? In Ford, there was a very strong pro-charter analysis in the Quebec Court of Appeal, and it invalidated the override. The Supreme Court of Canada overturned that, except on one ground. I was successful in arguing that you can't use the override retroactively. 
The court agreed on that, but it agreed on it in very simple terms. They just applied statutory interpretation, which is that the presumption is uh, legislation is not retroactive unless the uh, intention is made very clear. But I made arguments in addition about the fact that Quebec had inserted uh, override instruments in every statute and had overridden every section that was available for override. And I argued that there could be no political accountability for that because it was completely unintelligible to think of what the impact would be and therefore what the political responsibility would be for such maximal use of the override. Now, I I just want to share some of my insight into the uh, thinking of the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, because I think that the judgment is very unsatisfactory because it was simply reading uh, the override as if it was sort of a garden variety statute rather than an exceptional power encroaching on such fundamental interests as the Charter uh, guarantees. So the first thing that Justice Lemaire asked me was how I thought it would be possible for the Supreme Court of Canada to, to deal with challenges to use of the override. And remember that this is just at the beginning when we didn't think there would be many overrides, when they already had all this extra work, the charter infringement challenges. He said that the provincial legislatures would have to have an army of lawyers to create Uh, to satisfy the stringency of the particular use of the override, you know, naming the particular right. Anyway, I I, I didn't even know how to answer such questions because they weren't legal questions and they presupposed a position that uh, one should have to argue for in terms, because it was so far away from the genesis of the override or its text. This was all the more surprising because this was a period in which the court still had a very um, principled, purposive interpretation of the charter text. But um, the attitude seemed to be that the override should be a, a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card and that it shouldn't have any burdens and it shouldn't be in- interpreted narrowly because it was exceptional and it shouldn't be interpreted so as to impose democratic accountability on the enacting legislature. Absolutely. Ford is a really interesting case in itself. I know when I was first reviewing it, in a way it is unlike most other charter cases. It's unique because the Supreme Court of Canada did not engage in the standard forms of charter interpretation, such as purposive or progressive interpretation. The Supreme Court of Canada did not examine the history of the notwithstanding clause or evaluate its role within the charter and Canada's constitutional democracy as a whole. Instead, the Supreme Court of Canada stated very bluntly that they were adopting a form-only approach with very little reasoning or justification. What I also found interesting about the Ford decision is that it occurred in a very politically sensitive moment in Canada's history, where the Quebec secession movement was very popular and there was ongoing constitutional amendment discussions. So although the Supreme Court of Canada never acknowledged this political environment, it's likely that it impacted the approach to the reasoning on the notwithstanding clause. In terms of upcoming constitutional litigation, Lorraine, as you've discussed, Ford is the only Supreme Court of Canada decision that directly engages with Section 33, but there is likely upcoming constitutional litigation from Quebec and Ontario where the Supreme Court of Canada will rule once again on the notwithstanding clause. Do you have any comments on how the Supreme Court of Canada may interpret Section 33 in upcoming litigation and how much the Ford precedent will be maintained or if the court will, will expand beyond it? Well, I have, of course, strong views as to what the court should do. I think it should revisit Ford and provide, as you say, purposive, institutionally sound, historically sensitive account of the notwithstanding clause. I'm not confident that will happen. But there were statements in the oral argument of the recent City of Toronto election case in the Supreme Court that are, I think indications of where uh, some members of the court will go for reasons that I actually can't remember at the moment because there was an override proposed but the override wasn't actually necessary in in the litigation of the challenge to the the change in the election um, war awards in um, the city of Toronto election Justice Brown kept on bringing up section 33 and 
he was acting a little bit like Justice Scalia in the American Supreme Court, a former justice there who had the habit of forgetting that he was one of the judges and becoming one of the advocates. If he thought the advocate who was actually arguing a case wasn't making as strong an argument for his that, that particular position as he wanted to hear. And Justice Brown seemed to be emulating that very odd behavior. And he kept on raising concerns about how Section 33 would be interpreted. And he um, uh, kept on making a distinction between written and unwritten principles. And he was adamant that I think his first position was you can't use constitutional principles at all to interpret Section 33. And then it was you can't use unwritten constitutional principles. Now, of course, in the secession reference, the Supreme Court of Canada mentioned democracy, federalism, the rule of law, the protection of minorities as unwritten constitutional principles. But they're actually as written as any other principles. And since some of them are inherited from the British unwritten constitutional order, the distinction between written and unwritten isn't really all that informative. But the, I think the last comment that Justice Brown made in the oral argument is that was that unwritten constitutional principles can't be used to give meaning to the terms of Section 33. Now, this was very odd. And because he said it wasn't the deal. Now, my guess is I've done more work on Section 33 than um, Justice Brown has since I literally spent years, if not more than a decade, thinking about this and reworking my ideas and studying the historical documents and the um, secondary sources and the primary sources. Uh, so I think I know as much about the deal as, as he does. And, and I think that it's very clear that Section 33 is not the strongest clause in the charter, so uh, which his reading, uh, I think, would deliver. So I'm concerned about what the court will do. But I just want to make some comments about some of the things that I think could be argued as uh, we probably are coming up to a number of Supreme Court of Canada cases, hearing the voices of the segments of the multicultural community that are deleteriously affected by a proposed use of the override. That that's what democratic accountability is. It's not only to the majority or the majority of a particular ruling party, but the interests of the whole population in their rights protection and particularly the weakest sectors. And so there is a lot to be worked through in terms of the text and in terms of the constitutional principles that I think it's, of course, the way I would argue to the Supreme Court if I had the position to do so, but I also um, the way I think the court should go in order to, to have a coherent approach to interpreting the charter and establishing the appropriate institutional roles for courts and legislatures and the executive under the charter. And I greatly appreciate you sharing with the listeners where the litigation might be going because the notwithstanding clause for a long time, it wasn't a constitutional issue, at least from 2000 to 2018. There wasn't a lot of uses, people weren't talking about it very much, but Definitely since 2018, there's been a series of notwithstanding clause uses by provinces like Ontario that had never used it before and very much as a live constitutional issue. And I think we can pretty confidently say that there will likely be major Supreme Court rulings on it in the next five to 10 years. So as we come to the end of the podcast episode, we wanted for you to share with our listeners any current academic projects you're working on or other community involvement that, that you're involved in in constitutional litigation? Okay, well, first of all, I'm working on a project of which you know the work I've been sharing with you is part on the institutional roles under the Charter. I think that we've spent a lot of time on the politics of the Charter and we academically, and we spent a lot of time on the delineation of the content of the rights and now we have a lot of focus on the override. But I think the question of the institutional uh, roles and responsibilities of legislatures whose duties and powers have been dramatically um, altered by the um, constitutional amendments is, is a, a rich field for uh, deliberation. So I'm, I'm working on that. Um, I'm also very concerned about some of the things that have happened recently in constitutional litigation that make it very hard to litigate charter cases. The 
it seems to me the whole ethos of the um, debates on the chart and the deliberations created a framework for understanding how cases should get to the courts and how uh, they should be funded and the responsibilities of government lawyers and and their their government apparatus and taking positions in charter cases. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in thinking through what it would be to create better rules for the litigation of charter cases. I'm very concerned with the process of litigating charter cases, that you can have the best charter in the world, but if you don't have a good process for litigating it, then the, the judges don't get the proper support for their work. And of course, I'm also very interested in improving the quality of particularly constitutional advocacy in Canada. So I'm working on that as well. Thank you very much, Lorraine, for sharing this with our listeners and also sharing your insights on this live constitutional issue that students will probably be hearing quite a bit about over the next few years. Pleasure. We've been speaking with Professor Lorraine Weinrib of the University of Toronto Faculty of Law about Canada's notwithstanding clause under Section 33 of the Charter. Hello, and welcome to the Asper Center's Practice Corner. I'm Cheryl Milne, the Executive Director of the Asper Center, and on today's Practice Corner, I am speaking with lawyers Gregory Borden and Marion Sandilands on Quebec's an act respecting the laicity of the state, also known as Bill 21. Gregory Borden is counsel at Norton Rose Fulbright in Montreal, where his practice focuses on complex regulatory, and administrative law matters. He also has significant experience practicing constitutional law with expertise on the Quebec Charter of the French language. He is also secretary of the legal committee of the Coalition Inclusion Quebec, one of the plaintiffs challenging the legislation. Marion Sandilands is a partner at Conway Litigation in Ottawa and is particularly passionate about constitutional and administrative law. She previously served as a law clerk to the Honourable Justice Andromache Karat-Katsanis at the Supreme Court of Canada and currently teaches Canadian federalism law at the University of Ottawa. Welcome to both of you. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Today we're talking about an act respecting the laicity of the state passed in 2019. It prohibits individuals working in public service from wearing religious symbols, such as a hijab, kippah, or turban. The ban applies to Quebec Crown prosecutors, judges, public service employees, police officers, prison guards, public sector teachers, and principals. It also applies to all lawyers and notaries working in the public sector, as well as private sector lawyers and notaries working on government mandates if they need to interact with others. Bill 21 also prohibits any person employed by a government department, agency, or government subsidized body from having their face covered while exercising their functions. The stated purpose for the religious symbols ban is to achieve state religious neutrality, to preempt what they perceive to be inevitable charter challenges, the Quebec government quite controversially invoked the notwithstanding clause immunizing the act under sections 2 and 7 to 15 of the charter. Almost immediately following the passage of the legislation, four separate constitutional challenges were commenced and were all heard jointly in the case called Hack versus Procureur General du Québec. So I want to start with Greg first. Uh, in Hack, you provided an affidavit where you discussed how you were personally affected by the legislation. Do you mind discussing this and how you've been involved in the constitutional litigation? You're right. I am an affiant in the Hack case. In fact, the Hack case was the first case off the mark after the bill was enacted. It had been in preparation for several months. And they were getting affidavits from people who would be affected. I should say right off the bat that most of them are from Muslim women because they are clearly the primary target of this. I was asked to contribute one. I'm an Orthodox Jew, and they wanted to show the breadth of the impact. My affidavit discussed some of the imp my personal impacts. First thing was that as, as a lawyer, I am barred from taking any job in any Quebec provincial government department, any commission, any agency or board, uh, even as outside counsel, I'm barred from working on any Quebec government mandate if that involves going to court, or even if it involves simply interacting with a colleague in a different office. I'm personally not permitted to work on that uh, mandate. And I should mention uh, that as an Orthodox Jew, I wear a kippah. I wear it 
all the time. I wear it in court. I wear it with clients. I wear it at work. That has never been an issue before. So it's because I wear that that I am now excluded from working on a mandate given to our firm, even if I happen to be perhaps the most competent person to do it. I'm excluded from that. The affidavit also tried to put this in a certain uh, historical perspective. Personally, though, my great-grandparents, as I described in the affidavit, immigrated to Quebec about 120 years ago from Europe, where uh, they came from. They never would even have dreamt of wanting to fit into their society. That was something that was simply not imaginable to them. In fact, if they lived at a time and a, a place where their physical security was not threatened by virtue of being uh, Jewish, they felt very privileged. My parents, born and brought up in Quebec, related to the world very differently. They assumed, especially after the quiet revolution in Quebec, that they had a place in society, that they had therefore also a responsibility to contribute to society and to its development. They sent their children to French schools for a number of years, myself included. I went to a, an elementary school, a part of an elementary school in French. And that was specifically because they thought, number one, it was the right thing to do. And number two, it would allow us to take full part in this society. And I was brought up believing that was true. Bill 21 demonstrated to me that this was largely an illusion, that in fact, it is not a society in which I can take part in as a full member, at least uh, it's one that tells me I must either choose between being faithful to a religion or being part of this society. And that, say, is a, it really does feel like an attack on a, a personal dignity. Uh, and it's very difficult in these circumstances to even want your children to be brought up in this society. So that, in essence, are the highlights of the, the affidavit. I had been working with a number of other lawyers, and we finally decided that the best way of putting this forward was as a separate action. I had been involved with the uh, group, a grassroots movement uh, called uh, Coalition Inclusion Québec. So it was decided amongst our group that I would be a client in this case. Uh, I work with the lawyers on it. I must say they're a group not only of talented lawyers, but everybody is working, uh, volunteering their time pro bono. And uh, so although I'm active with the case, I'm really the client in that. Well, I want to turn to one of those lawyers now, Marion Sanderlands. You represent an intervener in Hack. Can you talk to us about the intervention, how you became involved in the case? So I was not involved at the trial level like Gregory. There were a number of interveners at the trial level, but I wasn't part of that. I became involved at the appeal level, which is where the case is now. I represent the Quebec English School Boards Association, which is intervening uh, before the Quebec Court of Appeal. There are a few new interveners as well on the appeal. Uh, the Quebec English School Boards Association was granted leave to intervene specifically on one issue, which is Section 23 of the Charter, which is the minority language education rights issue. I'll talk about this issue probably later as, as we get through all the issues that were raised. But suffice it to say, um, Section 23 was one of the grounds upon which Bill 21 was successfully challenged at trial. Uh, it's not subject to the notwithstanding clause, and it affects all of the English-speaking public school boards in Quebec, and so the, the association is, is my client. They've intervened on the appeal. So at first glance, Hack is a complex case with multiple challenging parties, and as you've um, alluded to, Marion, different sections of, of the Constitution or the Charter are being invoked in terms of the challenge. Greg, could you discuss the arguments put forward by the challenging parties on, in respect of Section 33 in the case? There are really three ways in which parties have uh, dealt with Section 33. One, we're using uh, arguments which essentially sidestep, avoid the Section 33. I think Marion will be discussing these somewhat later. Things like division of power and so on, where Section 33 is not engaged. There's also uh, uh, some of the parties have directly taken on Section 33, and I'll come back to discuss that. And then there's a third way, which is uh, in which we have also asked for just declaratory relief saying if everything else fails, we ask the court to declare that there's a violation of charter rights and they're not justified. So let me go back and deal with the arguments on Section 33 itself. Um, 
There are two parties who uh, directly address this. One is the Fédération Autonome des Enseignants, the Teachers Union, and they're inviting the court to overturn Ford. In Ford, the court said that there were only formal requirements to be able to uh, effectively invoke Section 33, but they're asking the court to uh, take a new approach and to also add substantive requirements and say that the legislature, which invokes Section 33, must come to court and demonstrate first that there's a pressing of substantial objective that is being uh, pursued by, by the legislation. In the coalition approaches this somewhat differently. We've said that it's not necessary to overturn Ford. What we're inviting the court to do is add a new layer to the analysis, a layer that uh, was not uh, pleaded in Ford, the court didn't address it, and it, it wasn't actually necessary for it to do so. And we're suggesting that in our case, they should take a further step and add this layer. In effect, or in brief, what we're saying is that Section 33 is like every other provision in the Charter, and remember that Section 33 is actually part of the Charter itself, that Section 33, like the other provisions, are subject to justification under Section 1. Obviously, that justification cannot be just uh, the application of Oak's test. Oak's test was uh, designed for provisions other than Section 33, but a justification is required under Section 1 nonetheless. This was an argument first advanced uh, by somebody named Professor Slattery back in 1983. Then, uh, but much more recently, Justice Basterash in, in 2005 wrote an article in which he did note that there that the issue of the relationship between Section 33 and Section 1 has never been the subject of judicial scrutiny. And uh, this is the case in which we're inviting the court to do it. Uh, I can go into a little bit more detail about how that would work, if you wish. Well, why don't we turn to Marion, because I, I think what you're talking about, and, and I do want to get back into it, is this sort of proportionality aspect of Section 33. But I want to talk with Marion a little bit about the arguments where parties are circumventing the notwithstanding clause. So you mentioned Section 23 in particular. Were these arguments successful at the court at first instance, and what are the nature of those arguments to sort of get around the use of the notwithstanding clause? I wasn't involved at the trial level, but I watched it unfold and, and I read the child judgment. It was what I will call the kitchen sink of legal arguments that were thrown at Bill 21. The, the parties and interveners brought a host of constitutional arguments, aside from the obvious charter grounds, because those are shielded by the notwithstanding clause. But they're trying to sidestep all of that by looking at other parts of the Constitution and other parts of the charter. Um, so the result is that the challenge itself now touches on so many parts of the Canadian Constitution, and in many ways, I think, even the foundations of our Constitution. So I'll run through, uh, just to give a flavor of, of what was brought forward, and there's kind of two groups. There's non-charter arguments, and then there's charter arguments that don't involve the notwithstanding clause. So first, in the non-charter world. This is not a comprehensive list of everything that was brought, but I'll hit the main ones. It was argued that Bill 21 is ultra vires of the province, so it's outside of, of Quebec's jurisdiction because it's essentially criminal law. It was argued that Bill 21 violates pre-Confederation statutes, including, for example, the Quebec Act of 1774, which guarantees a measure of religious freedom. It was argued that Bill 21 violates the Constitution's architecture because it limits the participation of citizens in public institutions. It was argued that Bill 21 violates the principle of the rule of law because it's too vague or it has a retroactive effect. And it was also argued that it violates the principle of judicial in independence because it imposes behaviors on judges or it constrains hiring of court staff. All of these arguments failed at trial but most of them have been brought forward on appeal. So we'll see what the Court of Appeal makes of these. Um, now for the charter arguments. So recall is that the notwithstanding clause only applies to sections 2 and 7 through 15 of the charter. That's in the words of section 33 itself. But that means there are many sections of the charter that the notwithstanding clause doesn't touch. 
And so these grounds, many of them were put forward as well. There were four that were brought forward and two failed and two actually succeeded at trial. And these were the only grounds that actually succeeded at trial. So there's four, I'll list them. Section 28 of the Charter is the guarantee that the Charter rights apply equally to men and women. And it was argued that Bill 21 violates this provision because it disproportionately harms women. This one failed at trial. The trial judge found that Section 28 isn't a freestanding right. It only applies to the scope of other charter rights. The second one was Section 6 of the charter, which is the mobility rights, so the right to move between provinces freely. And they, they argued that Bill 21 hinders interprovincial mobility, particularly of people who wear religious symbols, because it limits their employment in Quebec. Um, this one also was not successful at trial. The next one is Section 3 of the Charter, which is uh, the right to stand for election in provincial legislature. And Bill 21 specifically prohibited people who wear religious symbols from sitting in the National Assembly. So the trial judge found that, yes, this did in fact violate Section 3, and this violation was not justified under Section 1. And finally, Section 23, which is the ground that, that my client, the Quebec English School Boards Association, has intervened on. This is minority language education rights. This right has been found to include the right of the minority community to manage and control aspects of education that are linked to its language and culture. This is in the jurisprudence already on Section 23. And in Quebec, specifically, we'd be talking, the, the minority language group is the English language school boards and schools. Um, so it was argued here that the, the Bill 21's prohibition on religious symbols interferes with the English minority community's cultural autonomy within its schools. And the trial judge found that, in fact, yes, Bill 21 did violate Section 23, and this violation was not justified under Section 1. So the trial judge declared that Bill 21 doesn't apply inside the English school system. So these were the only two successful grounds at trial. And I'll, I, I just want to note that Quebec, as the province defending its legislation, didn't plead any Section 1 justifications and didn't bring any arguments or evidence on Section 1 to justify these potential breaches and has, again, not done so on appeal. And that's very noteworthy because typically an attorney general in defending its legislation will argue, first of all, that there's no charter breach, but then if that fails, they'll also argue that any breach is justified. But Quebec has not done that here. And, and I think there's an interesting interplay with the fact of the use of the notwithstanding clause but I'll, I'll leave it there. Yeah, that's very interesting. Well, and I think from what you were saying earlier, Gregory, about just the scope of the impact of this legislation on people like yourself in terms of your ability to be a fully participating member of Quebec society, it's not a big surprise that there's been a bit of a kitchen sink kind of approach to trying to challenge this. But going back to what you were talking about in terms of the use of the notwithstanding can you expand a little bit on what you were going to talk about there? But also, Quebec Court of Appeal is going to hear the Hack case in the fall of 2022. In regards to the arguments, but also your practice of litigating constitutional cases, how is this different than other charter cases that you maybe have been involved with in the past? Can I just very briefly make a, a one comment uh, or addition to what uh, Marion mentioned? It's quite true that... Uh, other than the Section 23 and one other argument, they were not accepted at first instance. However, uh, there are many findings of fact which are likely to be very helpful. And perhaps uh, as litigators, ultimately the most important thing at first instance is to get the facts into the record. And the judge was pretty good at setting out the essential elements. So I think this will play a role as the case moves up. Yeah, let me just go back and, if you don't mind, uh, slightly revise what you had said, Cheryl, about the argument on Section 1. I don't think it's particularly correct to say that we were just trying to apply the proportionality test. That wasn't designed with Section 33 in mind. Section 33 was clearly intended to give the legislatures the final word on issues that normally the court would decide. That's not to, for debate. What we're suggesting, though, is that Section 1 in some way circumscribes how far a legislature can go in deviating from constitutional rights. Because Section 33 is part of the Charter, the original drafters, the framers of the Constitution, could not have had in mind just complete and wholesale putting aside 
of rights which would completely undermine the section of section one, the basis for a, a free and democratic uh, society. What we're saying is that there are section one imposes limits if something is really beyond the pale uh, in terms of how far it trenches on those fundamental rights. That is something where section one says no. If no, if there's no reasonable basis on which that could be justified, it isn't allowed. There's a lot of room to develop that, and I think it should be a very interesting argument. Coming to your, your final question about what particular challenges are posed by this case, uh, you're right, it certainly does pose, it is in many ways uh, unique. Marion actually has alluded to the two uh, areas that I would identify as being the most challenging and, and different in this case. Uh, the first is, in a sense, the most obvious. This, at its core, should be a charter case. It's about a violation of charter rights. And the arguments would be, do, does it violate the right? And if so, is it justified? We're now back in a situation much more akin to what uh, the litigators were in back in the 1950s, when they were facing violations of rights and looking for non-charter argument. And that poses a whole generational <laughs> Like a set of challenges in particular. The other area, uh, and again, uh, Marion has alluded to this, is simply the number of arguments out there. It will clearly be necessary to whittle these down to focus when we get to the Supreme Court. How do you decide which arguments to set aside and which to focus on? These are not easy decisions because every one of the arguments in this case has its difficulties and every one of it has its appeal, no pun intended. So that will be a litigation challenge as we move towards the Supreme Court. I mean, it is very concerning about how this bill and the use of the notwithstanding clause here is really targeted at, at minorities who we would normally think of as being protected by the Charter. And it seems to go beyond what people had conceived the Section 33 being used for. However, all provinces and the federal government can invoke Section 33, the notwithstanding clause. Uh, but Quebec is the, the province that has made most use of it. Since the Quebec Superior Court decision in HAC, the Quebec National Assembly has invoked the notwithstanding clause again in Bill 96. Marion, could you briefly des describe what that is all about? Bill 96 was passed at the National Assembly in May 2022. The title of the law is, quote, an act respecting French, the official and common language of Quebec. Unquote. Unlike Bill 21, which brought in a brand new act, the Laicity Act, Bill 96 is actually more of an omnibus bill. It's a massive overhaul to an existing law, namely the Charter of the French Language, but it also amends 25 other provincial statutes, including Quebec's own human rights charter, and it also purports to amend the Constitution Act 1867 just to give you an overview of what this is. In terms of the notwithstanding clause, Bill 96 uses the notwithstanding clause the same way as Bill 21, so totally and preemptively. It overrides both the Canadian Charter and the Quebec Charter. And I'll note that the trial judge in the Bill 21 challenge found that the, this particular mechanism of using the notwithstanding clause preemptively and totally over both the Quebec and Canadian Charter was the first time this had ever been done in Quebec and Canadian history. So Bill 96 is the second. Uh, Bill 96, I'll note, was introduced in the National Assembly about a month after the trial judgment in the Bill 21 challenge, which upheld the use of the clause in that manner. Bill 96 uses the notwithstanding clause twice, actually, to oust both charters. First, it provides that the entire charter of the French language will operate notwithstanding the charter. So not just Bill 96 itself, but the entire statute, the charter of the French language, will operate notwithstanding the charters. And then second, it puts the remainder of Bill 96, so the amendments to the 25 other provincial statutes, regulations, and the Constitution Act itself, all under the shield of the notwithstanding clause. So this is the same device as Bill 21, but uh, it's more extensive in, in terms of the scope of the legislation that it's, that it's shielding from charter scrutiny. For example, 
Bill 96 creates a huge number of new executive powers and administrative powers of the state. For example, some new search powers, and these are all shielded from charter scrutiny. In terms of how this interacts with Bill 21 challenge, I'll say so far Bill 96 has not been put before the Court of Appeal in the context of the Bill 21 challenge. So right now the Bill 21 challenge is continuing on its own path as before. But I'll note that in May of 2022, the Minister of Justice, David Lametti, announced that Canada would intervene in the Bill 21 appeal when it gets to the Supreme Court of Canada. And he made this announcement the day after Bill 96 was adopted. It's not officially part of the Bill 21 appeal, but the announcement was made the day after it was passed. So I think... Ultimately, Bill 96 raises the stakes for the Bill 21 challenge because now we've got a second and even broader use of the notwithstanding clause. So the court's decision one way or the other in Bill 21 is going to have a ripple effect on the use of the clause in Bill 96 and any future uses that come between now and when the Bill 21 appeal is decided and even after. We might just want to um, also point out that uh, this should not be considered just of Quebec interest. Besides the fact that basic rights are at issue, Ontario has recently adopted legislation, important legislation regarding election expenses, which it has chosen to shield with the notwithstanding clause. So the repercussions of this across the country are likely to be significant. There's lots to, to watch for in the hack um, case as it makes its way up. I think many people will be paying close attention to what the Quebec Court of Appeal does, but it certainly is on its way to the Supreme Court of Canada. I want to thank both of you for speaking with us today. As you've mentioned, Gregory, the, the notwithstanding clause has seen a spike in invocations across Canada since 2018, and we will likely see more constitutional litigation on the scope of its application in the coming years, and it really is sort of at the essence of the architecture of our constitution. So thank you very much um, for talking to us today about this really important case. Thank you. My pleasure. Charter course, I will charter course. If we could just get the country to trust us. Charter course, south, east, west, and north. And along the way, we may find justice. Charter course, I will charter course. We can just get the country to trust us. Charter, of course, southeast, west, and north. Along the way.